Hi there, it's Bean. Welcome to Great Moments in Weed History. Today's episode is one of the most important and inspiring we've ever had on this podcast because it is the story of this man. Plenty of right now. Robert Randall is one of very unusual court case. He has glaucoma, which is an eye disease that can cause blindness. He found that smoking marijuana helped his sight better than what the doctors prescribed for him, so he asked the government for permission to use the drug legally. But before the permission was granted, uh, he was arrested for possession of marijuana, and the judge in Washington, D.C. dismissed the case because Mr. Randall was using the drug to keep him going blind. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to have you with us this morning. Thank you. You won the case, and the government provides your marijuana. How does this work? What's the, the system? Robert Randall was America's first federally supplied medical cannabis patient. He passed away in 2001, but his legacy lives on as one of the most game-changing weed activists of all time. I had the honor of interviewing Robert's partner in all of this activism, Alice O'Leary Randall, about her own long journey with cannabis, which began in the early 1970s, when smoking weed miraculously saved the love of her life from going blind and continues on today as she works to educate her fellow senior citizens about the plant's medicinal benefits. We'll also get to hear from Robert Randall himself, because towards the middle of this podcast, I've inserted a clip of him appearing on CNN. Now, that interview, among his many, is most memorable because our hero took the occasion to actually light up and smoke a federally legal joint on live TV. In my conversation with Alice, we discussed that and many other high points of their marriage, and we also worked through all of the obstacles that she and Robert had to overcome as together they helped spark a medical cannabis revolution. For more on that medical cannabis uprising, check out archived episodes of Great Moments in Weed History about Dennis Perone, Brownie Mary, and Wham. Also, happy Pride, everyone. Because if you do go back and listen to those Dennis Perone and Brownie Mary episodes in particular, you will understand just how central and instrumental the LGBTQ community has been in stopping the police from arresting seriously ill people for smoking weed. It is as simple as that. The cops wanted to keep busting people for weed, even if they were dying from AIDS or cancer. So the gay community in San Francisco set up underground networks to get AIDS patients free weed while simultaneously working within the system to change the law. Dennis Perone got shot by the cops and was put in prison, and he never stopped fighting for your right to smoke weed. Brownie Mary, a literal little old lady, got arrested three times, and she never stopped supplying terminally ill AIDS patients with her magical weed brownies. So if you like to smoke weed and not get arrested, you need to know that history. Of course, the LGBTQ community shouldn't have to legalize your favorite plant and keep you out of jail just to win your respect. But hey, they did it anyway. Well, Homer, I won your respect, and all I had to do was save your life. Now, if every gay man could just do the same, you'd be set. Amen to that. Okay, before we dig into this Weeds episode, I do want to stop ever so briefly and say thank you to everyone who supports this podcast on Patreon. I'm going to just be honest and say that I recently had a pleasantly profound psychedelic experience, and one of the thoughts that blew my mind truly was just how grateful I am that people all over the world directly support this show. That you all get high on history with me, weed after weed, on Weedness Day, and a few hundred of you find it in your hearts to actually throw in on this shit. If you would like to join us on Patreon, all you have to do is go to greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. You'll find out about all the secret sessions that we're having there, all the bonus content. You'll be able to watch every episode in its video form. And of course, the warm, warm feeling that comes from sharing this underground, illicit, outlaw history of cannabis with people all over the world. And you can do it all at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. So if you are supporting already, thank you, thank you. 
thank you. I'll give you a quick version of what it would have been like at the festival. Had I known you were there and you were a supporter, I would have been like, hey man, hey lady, hey, hey non-binary stoner, just, oh man, just wanted to let you know, I just like love that you get what I'm putting out in the world and like that you're bringing that back to me. It means so much. And I honestly, sometimes it's really hard and lonely to make a show. And uh, sometimes I'm just a guy in his uh, pajamas late, late, late at night, too far behind on his deadlines. And I'm like, what am I even doing, man? I'm just talking to myself. And then I see that little email come through, letting me know someone from somewhere could be anywhere on earth has seen me passing the hat around and said, yeah, I believe in this show. I believe great moments in weed history should be shared and I'm willing to put my money where my mouth is and Oh, man, that feels good. All right. Thanks for indulging me. I'll let you get back to Skrillex or whoever you imagined we were all listening to. And if you want to join us, you know where. GreatMomentsInWeedHistory.com Now, let's dig into our interview with Alice O'Leary Randall. Personally, I'm going to get prepped by powering up my PAX 3 so I can puff, puff, packs on some beautiful outdoor organic cannabis that was gifted to me by a real life weed fairy during that very same psychedelic journey we were just discussing. Oh, green light means go. I'm going to puff puff packs, but what if you, dear listener, are not as prepared? What if you are saying to yourself, whoa, this sounds like the deep real deal weed history I came for, but I am not lit as I would like to be. And you're freaking out. Don't freak out. You know what you have to do. Take a deep breath. I'm going to take a deep puff. Ah. And all you have to do is hit pause and use that time at your leisure to roll yourself a joint or to split a blunt or to puff puff packs or to pack a bong or to endabulate a dab or to eat as much edibles as you think is wise and not an edible more or do whatever it takes to get you in the headspace you want to be in. Because when you're ready and you hit on pause, I'll tell you, We'll also be ready for another great moment in weed history. Alice, it is an Honor to have you here. Thank you for coming on Great Moments in Weed History. Well, thank you, David, for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Let's start where we always like to on this program with a simple question, but one that often reveals a lot. Where and when and how did cannabis first come into your life? Let's see, that would be in college back in the late 1960s. Both Robert and I were attending the University of South Florida in Tampa. Robert had heard about it. He was quite eager to try it. I had a little apartment, kind of a duplex house kind of thing. And we went there and we turned off all the lights and we we stuffed towels by the door so the smell wouldn't get out. And we, we whispered the whole night because we were so convinced that somebody would break down the door and take us away. But they didn't. And we had a good time. You know, unlike uh, Bill Clinton, we did inhale <laughs> and enjoyed it. <laughs> did cannabis become um, a regular part of your life and your relationship from, from then? Yes, it did. Very much so. Being in Tampa, we were told that we were a, a port of entry for a lot of South American cannabis. So we had some really good cannabis. I think it did become a part of our lives. Certainly for Robert, it did. He hadn't even been diagnosed with glaucoma, but he seemed to realize that marijuana was helping him in some way. When did the medicinal aspects of the plant come into your lives and, and, and how did that manifest itself? Well, after we left college, we never lost touch with one another, but we kind of linked back up again in Washington, D.C. After, after graduating, Robert went to Washington. He hoped to be a speechwriter, but he ended up driving a cab. That was 1973. Robert had been diagnosed with glaucoma in 1972, 
we lost our contacts for marijuana. That's when the glaucoma really began to manifest itself. And in retrospect, I've always thought that he was unwittingly self-medicating when he was in college. He used to rub his eyes a lot and he'd take off his glasses and he'd rub his eyes a lot. So obviously the glaucoma was manifesting itself at that point. He brought it up with an optometrist who told him, oh, you read too much. Stop reading so much. You're too young to have glaucoma. Go out, have fun, you know. So he goes to Washington, D.C. He no longer has contacts for, for marijuana. The glaucoma manifests itself to the point where he makes an appointment with an ophthalmologist. The ophthalmologist diagnoses the glaucoma, tells Robert he has somewhere between three to five years of sight remaining, that it's already very, very destructive to his eyesight. Started Robert on a whole bunch of eye drops, none of which really did the trick. None of them got the pressure. Glaucoma, of course, is elevated pressure within the eye, which crimps the optic nerve and stars the eye of, of nutriment. The drops aren't doing much good. Robert has, by this time, made a few friends, and one time one of them gave him a joint, so he's in his apartment. It's nighttime. Needless to say, he was a little depressed about being diagnosed at the age of 24 with glaucoma. He was feeling kind of sorry for himself, so he decided to smoke the joint. He set the scene, you know, he got the music going, turned down the lights, and got up to go to the kitchen to get himself a, a glass of Coca-Cola. And on the way to the kitchen, he looks outside the window and um, notices that there are halos around the streetlight. And that's kind of a telltale sign of elevated pressures, these tri-colored halos around streetlights. He sees them, he goes, ugh, sighs, goes to get his Coca-Cola, comes back, turns on music, smokes the joint. About half an hour later, he gets up to go replenish the Coca-Cola. He goes by the window, looks out, and the tri-colored halos are gone. He describes it beautifully in our um, autobiography, Marijuana Rx, uh, The Patient's Fight for Medicinal Pot. He talks about synapses exploding and, and thinking, oh, this is medicine. Oh, this is great. This is wonderful. And then deciding, no, that can't be. I must be stoned, which, of course, he was. But, you know, you have to understand this is 1972. There was no medical marijuana in America in 1972. There were people like Robert who had discovered accidentally that marijuana seemed to help their condition, but there was no thought of using marijuana as a medication. The only area in which Harry Onslinger's prohibition had been truly effective was in the field of medicine. The thought of using cannabis as medicine had been eradicated from the consciousness of America. That, I think, speaks to how profound the propaganda was, because this is a time when many people are defying the law to smoke cannabis. There is a sense mm -hmm. that the criminalization of cannabis is wrong, that the harms have been greatly exaggerated to the point of absurdity. You know, this is the era when Reefer Madness is starting to play as a midnight movie. And yet, as you as you point out in this area, when we talk not about the harms, but about the benefits, your husband was uh, so uh, inundated with this propaganda that he was doubting his own experience of his own body. And, and yet he did ultimately push past that and, and, and realize that, yes, this, this was helpful. And how did he communicate that to you? And, and where did you go from there? He didn't trust himself. So he met, he got his friend to, you know, get him some marijuana, he bought some marijuana. And through trial and error, he proved it to himself. He went, my gosh, this is, wow, this is amazing. He called and he said, look, I've got something to tell you. I really think this marijuana is helping my glaucoma. And I laughed. <laughs> I, I just thought, oh yeah, okay, sure, Randall. Uh -huh. but, <laughs> but, you know, through time and observing him when he smoked versus when he didn't, I re recognized he was correct. You know, there's something about the way he carried himself. If he'd been smoking, he was more relaxed because he could see better. <laughs> and, you know, it helps to see when you're walking around and doing things. And so it became our one of our primary goals in life was to keep Robert supplied with marijuana. We didn't tell anyone else. Robert didn't tell his doctor. He was afraid his doctor would say, get out of my office, you pothead. So we just kept it to ourselves. 
And then one spring, the spring of 1975, we had a, a sun deck on our apartment and uh, a few seeds that had been left in a, a potted plant that had died. Cannabis seeds kind of popped their head up. And Robert said, wow, why don't we grow some? Okay, why don't we grow some? So we started growing. We had four or five plants on our sun deck, which was very well protected, we thought. We didn't see, we didn't think anybody could see it other than our neighbors who lived above us. And we knew they already smoked marijuana, so they weren't going to turn us in. Let me just make a, a point for some of our younger listeners. Cannabis used to come with many free seeds in it. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> yes, it did. this is the pre-Sinsomia era or maybe the dawn of the Sinsomia era. But it sounds like these were seeds that you didn't plant, quote unquote, but sort of discarded into a uh, potted plant, and and they came up as what's known as volunteers. Is that is exactly. that exactly volunteers to America? Absolutely. <laughs> And that is just uh, speaks beautifully to this plant. We call it weed. That's a derisive name in some ways for a plant. Weeds are the plants that you remove when you're gardening. And yet it also speaks to the vitality and the life force of this plant. And I think it's quite beautiful that, in essence, these incredibly important plants, the plants that uh, um, put down the roots of our medical cannabis movement in the modern era came up of their own accord. And and uh, w did you transplant those uh, same uh, plants? Did you start over with different seeds? And, and, and where did it take you as, a, as now a uh, very early medical cannabis cultivator? I think there were like three seeds that came up in one pot. And so we transferred them to their own garden. And I do think we we had five maybe six plants. So we definitely put out a few other few other seeds and we tucked them over in the corner and they had lots of sunshine. So they were very happy. And then we decided that we would go to Indiana to visit some friends for a few days. And I remember saying to Robert, maybe we ought to move the plants inside. And Robert said, no, 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 they'll be fine. Nobody can see them. There's just Charlie that lives upstairs. You know, he, he's not going to bother them. As a matter of fact, the Charlie had moved his own plants out onto the fire escape of his building. So Charlie was also in the business of, of growing cannabis. So we left on our vacation. And I think the day after we left, a cop came around to investigate a report of some kids breaking in somewhere or something. I, I don't know. And he saw Charlie's plants on the fire escape. Okay. He goes up to investigate Charlie's plants. And then he can look down onto our sun deck. And he sees our plants. Charlie sees the cop and he tries desperately to get hold of us. Now, this is 1975. I don't think there were even answering machines in 1975. Mm -hmm. Charlie just kept calling and calling and he knocked on the door and couldn't reach us. So when the police came to execute their bust, Charlie was free and clear. He didn't have any, but Alice and Robert got busted for growing plants on their sun deck. And we came home from our vacation to a search warrant on the kitchen table. The apartment had been trashed with a, a nice little note to say, please turn yourself in at such and such. You know, in the scheme of things, it was a pretty gentle bust. It's not something, you know, we weren't slammed up against the wall and guarded with, with Uzis while, you know, while they tore apart our, our home. But nevertheless, it was traumatic. We, we got ourselves a lawyer. We turned ourselves in. We were arrested. And Robert immediately started to investigate avenues that might help him prove that he needed this stuff for his eyes. Goes to normal, uh, meets Keith Strop. Keith gives Robert a, a very thin folder <laughs> labeled medical use. And it's very, very tiny. He tells Robert to call NIDA and speak with somebody there about getting the Marijuana and Health Report, which was a congressional report, was a NIDA report mandated by Congress. It had to be done every year. And when we got this in the mail, there's a, a section on therapeutics, and it says right in there, maybe research has shown it reduces elevated eye pressure, and this may be very useful for glaucoma. Obviously, that's a paraphrase. This is NIDA is the National Institute on Drug Abuse. So this is not only the federal government, but this is an agency of the federal government with a specific mandate to look at cannabis as 
simply a drug of abuse. And yet, at this time, they can't help but see that there is research. And yet, uh, they are no doing nothing to inform the public. NIDA never thought to really make this very public to anybody else, you know. All of Congress knew that marijuana could help people with glaucoma, but nobody had bothered to tell the public. And it, it just infuriated Robert. It just, I mean, I can't tell you how he was so angry about it. He just became a pit bull. <laughs> you know, he got angry and he said, we're going to fight this. And so we did. And that's basically how we got started. The old fashioned way. We got busted. <laughs> yeah. Well, that every, 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 every time they do bust someone, they plant the seed of an activist. And, and that's really been the story of the progress uh, over the last 50 years. And it strikes me that 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 report and, and your bust is about 50 years ago. And we still have the federal government officially classifying cannabis as a schedule one drug, which means, according to them, no known medicinal uh, benefits and a high potential for abuse, both of which are just patently absurd uh, at this point. And, you know, your experience shows that 50 years ago, they knew that. So, you know, let's go into pit bull mode. Where, where do you, you know, when, when the anger uh, subsides and turns into action, what, what are the actions uh, that you took? If there was a researcher mentioned in the NIDA report, Robert contacted him and he, he got himself invited to, well, to two studies, actually. The most important one was the study at UCLA that involved Dr. Robert Hepler. Those studies were the, they were the dying embers of the research that had been uh, authorized by the Schaefer Commission, which of course was the Nixon appointed commission that was going to look at marijuana and recommend scheduling, which they did, but Richard Nixon said, no, I don't accept your, you know, we'll keep it in schedule one. So in UCLA, these studies are, are dying down, it's 1975. And I've thought, I, I've realized not too long ago that if, if all of this had happened to us even two months later, that UCLA program would have been done. But as it was, we, we got Robert in on the very tail end of it. He was treated for 10 days. They used all the conventional medications. They treated him with placebos, marijuana placebos. They tested him with Delta 9 THC capsules. And they found that a combination of conventional glaucoma medication, which is primarily eye drops, and marijuana, marijuana was the essential ingredient to get all those other medications to work. The marijuana wouldn't work on its own. The conventional medications wouldn't work on their own. But between them, there was a synergy that reduced Robert's eye pressure enough. The glaucoma was what, put on hold. It was stopped. That was certifiable information that we could take into a court of law and say, look, we have a, a noted UCLA researcher saying, Robert needs marijuana to keep from going blind. And that's what we used when we went to trial. It was based on the ancient concept of necessity. The action that he performed was less evil uh, than what would have happened if he didn't perform it. In other words, if he didn't smoke, you know, he'd go blind. But by breaking the law, he was able to preserve his eyesight. It was quite an important legal decision. The first time the concept of necessity had been applied to medicine and health. And this is all at your at your criminal trial for cultivating those plants. What were the penalties that could have been applied at that time? And um, where, where did you go for help in, in mounting this very novel and very uh, groundbreaking criminal defense? Well, you know, the charges against us were misdemeanors, David. We, we, could, have, we could have paid a $250 fine and walked away from it. But we couldn't walk away from Robert's glaucoma. So, you know, we would still need marijuana. And that was a big part of realizing that we had to fight this. I had been working at a, a theater in Washington, and, and they had this attorney by the name of John Carr. 
K-A-R-R. And John had a a bit of a reputation for being a a creative thinker. And he came up with this concept of, of necessity, as I said, basing it on the ancient common law necessity, which dates back to the Magna Carta. He was quite brilliant. He was really a brilliant attorney. And we can't thank him enough. This was somebody you knew. This was somebody who knew you. This wasn't somebody who sort of had this legal theory in mind and was looking for a way to apply it. And and when you say he was a creative thinker, is it, is it uh, safe to maybe say that he was sympathetic to the cannabis cause as well? Mm, quite possibly, yeah. <laughs> I don't know for certain. I don't know for certain. But you kind of hit on something, David, that, you know, throughout this, I, Bob and I just always felt that we had angels on our shoulders. It just seemed that everything fell into place you know, when things seemed darkest, some other miracle would come along and and resurrect us again. I mean, it was, you know, the fact that we knew John, it was so happenstance. And, and yet he turned out to be probably the best attorney in Washington at that time for this particular trial. And all, all beginning with these, I'm going to call them um, magical volunteer plants and what, what a beautiful. Yes, yes. Um, and, and so take me now to the courtroom or 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 how was this decision uh rendered and 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 what how did it change things Robert had a very uh very good sense of communication he was a trained rhetorician he had his master's degree in rhetoric which is the art of public persuasion again angels on our shoulders i don't know that the universe could have picked a better person um you know to pluck up and say hey go out and tell the world that marijuana is good and convince them the judge in our case was a former dean of the howard university law school so he was intrigued with the whole concept of applying necessity to a health question to a medical question so then again another point in our favor. And so we had our trial and then Judge Judge Washington took his time crafting the decision. It is a beautifully written legal decision, uh, which acquitted Robert um, of all charges. So the decision was released in November. At the same time, we had been pursuing a petition to NIDA and FDA and DEA asking to use their marijuana to treat Robert's glaucoma. We knew they had marijuana because he had used it at UCLA. We realized if the decision went in our favor, we'd have to have a source of marijuana. Well, the federal government grows it. Ask them for their marijuana. And so in within a week's period of time, the decision came out and Robert's petition was granted to access legal quantities of marijuana from the federal government. It became huge huge news. It's covered by all three networks. Robert was deluged with calls from radio talk shows and newspapers, and it became big news. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the term medical marijuana did not exist until 1976. Wow, I saw that and I went, well, that demonstrates just how bad a case of amnesia (laughs) the uh, medical community had. And so people were intrigued. He got all kinds of phone calls. We heard from other people, people with multiple sclerosis, people uh, with epilepsy, migraine headaches, Crohn's disease I'd never heard of before. I had to go to the dictionary and look that one up to figure out what relief this gentleman was getting. They had discovered, just as Robert had, that marijuana was helping their conditions. And so the movement began. We began to organize these people. We sent a petition to the Attorney General of the United States asking him to reschedule marijuana. That eventually got molded into the normal petition from 1972, asking the same thing. And so that's how the movement was born. The government would have been delighted if we had just kept quiet and used the marijuana quietly. They they never would have bothered us, but we couldn't walk away. I mean... Not when you start hearing from others, you go, my God, what? how many are there? <laughs> thousands, thousands. And let's let's talk for a second about um, this federal supply of uh, cannabis. Was this uh, being grown at the still existing and still cultivating uh, facility 
at the University of Mississippi and and how did this cannabis get to Robert and and what what was it like? The answer is yes, it was grown at the pot plantation as they like to call it. If you've ever gone there, I've had the honor to go there and you know, they call it the pot plantation, but you walk into a there's 5 acres, I think maybe 2 of them are under cultivation. It was a tiny little area. Uh, but the marijuana is grown there. It's shipped to the Research Triangle Institute in North Carolina. One of the cigarette companies donated a rolling machine to the federal government at some point. And so they used the cigarette rolling machine to make their joints. The joints come out looking like a like a palm oil cigarette, like an unfiltered cigarette. Same size, fits into a cigarette pack perfectly. And then it's put into, uh, well, I can, I can show you. It's put into tins like this, and then has his, uh, that's his prescription label on the top. And it's shipped to a researcher, and uh, the researcher dispenses it to his clients, his research subjects. The material that Robert received was often several years old. And as a result, it's very dry. And their idea of curing marijuana was to, to cut off the stalk and lay it out on these black toppins out in the Mississippi sun. It was criminal. It was <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I never got to, to harvest my marijuana. So I'm not saying I'm an expert on harvesting marijuana. But I walked into this farm and saw these big stalks laid out in the sun. And I went, oh, that's just wrong. That's just <laughs> wrong. The highest percentage of THC that Robert ever had was maybe around 3.0. Now, that is incredibly low, as anyone today knows, but it saved his sight. So I think we have to, I always like to use this point um, to say medical use is very different than recreational use. And it showed that you don't need 20% THC to get the medicinal value of things. Now, they may have gotten better. It was a long time ago that I was at the farm. Uh, 45 years ago, in fact, but I don't know. Unfortunately, uh, I have to say that uh, I've uh, seen examples recent, relatively recently of what is coming out of that facility. And while it uh, may be a tick better uh, than what they were supplying in the 1970s, it is still terrible. By the standards of modern cannabis, uh, I'd like to say that uh, government weed is to weed as government cheese is to cheese. If it's all you have, of course, you, you, you may be grateful. And I do feel that that is purpose. When you have the entire federal government trying to suppress the medical benefits of cannabis and yet maintaining the only supply of cannabis that can be used not just for uh, this uh, supplying this handful of patients who eventually have access, but for every single federally approved study of cannabis uses this you know, I, I we have love for all forms of cannabis on this program, including hemp. But this, in a medical <laughs> sense, is is terrible cannabis. And yet, despite even this additional uh, impediment, the medicinal benefits come through. Now, what was the first uh, experience of of smoking this cannabis like? How did that change your lives? You know, once Robert gained access, remember, he, he was the, literally the only American out of 213 million Americans at that point in time. He was the only individual legally allowed to smoke marijuana. And so, yes, it it totally changed our lives. And I think initially, well, Robert was grateful to have it. You know, it, beggars can't be choosers. And, you know, this was his site. But with the passage of time, a lot of very fine cultivators used to track Robert down and give him gifts. And we learned that uh, there's some excellent, excellent cannabis being cultivated in this country. And, and I've always felt that the government's treatment of the plant betrayed their total lack of, of curiosity, their total, they, they didn't care about it. You know, they had no, they really had no interest in it. They were sort of going through the motions because they had to do something to prop up this Schedule One um, 
debacle that they created, and, and they had to, quote, prove that they were researching it. But I don't think they were really interested in it. I, if they were, when I, when I look at what's come out of the the current uh, legalization effort, the the fine products that are created, the the excellent cannabis, the uh, the the many forms of of using it, the patches, the pills, the tinctures. You know, this plant is it's just bottomless in its wonder, and uh, I just never felt the federal government thought that at all. And yet at the same time, and I've heard a version of this story from many people who were early advocates for medical cannabis, the actual quote unquote criminals, the cultivators of cannabis in the underground are not only putting in tremendous efforts to to uh, develop and uh, breed cannabis for its uh, best properties, but despite the risk to themselves, are seeking you and Robert out, are seeking out other people in this movement to supply them with cannabis. And it speaks to me to the compassion and sense of mutual support that has always been a part of this cannabis movement and uh, really juxtaposes against here's the federal government with every resource available, with every uh, type of scientist and facility at their disposal and no interest uh, in helping people and actually an active interest in suppressing this medicine. And I do believe a big part of that is because this medicine, cannabis, is a massive threat to the pharmaceutical industry. And yet the people that society not only denigrates and stigmatizes, but wants to actively criminalize and put in prison these cannabis growers feel it in their hearts to seek you out. What were some of the finest flowers uh, that you can remember in this new era where you have become uh, the faces of this movement in a way? Oh, you're asking me what my favorite strains are? <laughs> from back then, <laughs> I, yeah. I've... Oh, from back then. Oh, I, I don't know. Uh, Arkansas, there was a young man there who was particularly faithful to Robert each year we would get some of his finest buds and they would come in this mason jar and you'd take the top off and you didn't have to smoke it. <laughs> just, <laughs> just take a whiff and close it back up quick, you know, uh, s save the wealth. How did this program expand to more than one person? Robert got his legal marijuana and he started talking out about it. Every chance he got, he would speak publicly. The federal government didn't like that. They immediately began taking steps to curtail him. And at one point, the national drug advisor to the president, who was President Carter at that point, wrote him a letter saying, essentially, you, you either need to stop talking or they're going to take your marijuana away. And eventually they did. January 1978, his doctor left town, got another job somewhere. The federal government said, oh, while well, your doctor's leaving, we can't possibly give you this marijuana anymore. It was very difficult to find doctors to help. It's still, sadly, difficult sometimes to find doctors to help. But then it was particularly hard. Robert had to essentially sue the federal government to get his rights back. And so Robert got his access back. And in order to do that, the federal government, you know, they can't just give somebody marijuana because he needs it. Couldn't do that. So they made up this compassionate IND program. IND stands for Investigational New Drug Application. They said Robert was in the compassionate IND program. Well, obviously people said, oh, what's that? Can other people be in this program? And the government said, sure. If your doctor comes to us and proves your need, you can get in it too. Well, that's easy to say, and it wasn't easy to do. But we did start getting people to come forward who were willing to do this uh, arduous paperwork and delays. It was not an easy process, but eventually we had about 12 to 15 people in this program. And they gave us the foundation for the Marijuana AIDS Research Service, which Bob and I started in 1991. That was to get AIDS patients the marijuana that they needed to treat their symptomology. The marijuana AIDS research program was so successful, <laughs> the government could have acted two ways. It could have expanded cultivation of marijuana and helped AIDS patients. What are the chances, right? Not going to happen. Or they could shut down the program. 
And that's what they did. And by shutting down the program, they revealed just how horrible they were. And it made America very mad. People all over the country. Now in California, they marshaled that anger into what became Prop 215. It started with Prop P, and then it went to Prop C in Santa Cruz, and then there was a Prop E somewhere else, these little local things, and then they all melded together in the statewide. You know, they'd had it, right? They knew they weren't going to get federal marijuana, so why not grow our own in our borders? It was, it was really brilliant, and obviously it's worked so well. It could be better, but it's worked really well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I would direct listeners uh, who who may not have checked out these specific episodes of Great Moments in Weed History. You can pick up that story at, after you finish this one uh, uh, with our episodes, uh, separate episodes about Dennis Perone and Brownie Mary, who were uh, certainly at the center of that work that was done uh, to create, you know, those local initiatives in San Francisco and, and ultimately uh, Prop 215. And and then I do want to also make the point, you know, particularly in the earlier days of the HIV AIDS epidemic in this country, these were overlapping stigmas. There was still a tremendous stigma around cannabis, despite how much progress had been made and how much evidence existed for the medicinal properties of the plant. And then there was a tremendous stigma uh, around HIV AIDS and and as it related to uh, the gay community, the LGBTQ community. And so the incredible malpractice of the federal government, knowing that cannabis was not only an effective treatment for HIV AIDS, but often the difference between life and death, and certainly the difference between quality of life and and the ravages of facing these conditions, and yet made a conscious clear decision to shut down a program that was effective in essence because it was going to be too effective because too many people were going to benefit from it and um, weighing that interest against the interests of the pharmaceutical industry and simply not wanting to take care of people because maybe they happened to be gay or because there was such fear and 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 I'm, I'm going to say the word hatred in the population mm-hmm. and and when we look oh. at when we look at some of the problems that we face as a society now not just around cannabis and not just around that particular community but just the hatred in people's hearts the the othering mm-hmm. of of our fellow citizens you know it shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody who understands what our community has been through, the cannabis community, to be targeted and and criminalized. And I'm just wondering, you know, I don't want to re-traumatize you in any way, but on on a personal level, how how did you manage to not only deal with that, but to keep going and to double down in, in your efforts to rectify this situation? Where do you find the emotional... Uh, strength to go up against these prejudices, your own government, the stigma, and and the heartbreak of that? Well, undoubtedly, the the strength to go on came from the people we were helping. You know, Robert Robert had glaucoma, which is an unfortunate disease. He might have lost his sight. But we had people who lost their children uh, to cancer. We dealt with uh, a young woman who from Georgia who... Uh, who lost her husband to colon cancer and then, you know, went out and, and lobbied Georgia to become uh, uh, one of the states that had a marijuana as medicine program in the 1980s. And she went on to get us Newt Gingrich, his help in trying to get a marijuana as medicine bill through Congress. That's another little known fact. You know, this rabid conservative at one time thought he had some compassion in his heart until it became politically expedient not to. Whenever I'd get down, it, it would be the pa- the other patients who brought, brought me back up. And I think the same was true for Robert. 
We knew the righteousness of what we were doing. With Robert's ability to articulate and explain things, we had such a jewel. We couldn't, we couldn't squander that. You know, our job was to re-educate America about cannabis as medicine because we'd lost that as a culture. And so we had all these local stories. We had a woman in Nebraska, 50 years old, this is in 1979, who heard that marijuana might help her get through cancer chemotherapy. And her husband walked into a bar in, in Nebraska somewhere and said, my wife is sick. She has cancer. She needs marijuana. Can somebody help me? And when he left that evening, there was marijuana on the seat of his car. You know, a phone call from a, a husband watching his wife eat watermelon. The first thing she's been able to eat in a couple of months because she's used marijuana, she's going through chemotherapy, and now she can eat. There were so many wonderful, wonderful people that came forward and gave the best years, uh, some of the best years, of their, certainly the last years of their lives, uh, to try and change the situation. Well, to have walked away would have been to betray them. And uh, I, I don't, Robert and I could never have done that. No, so. That's beautiful. And, Thank you know, you. we deal in a lot of kinds of stories on this podcast. Um, often the great moments in weed history are born of overcoming or certainly fighting back against these oppressive systems. But I do want to highlight a uh, what I consider a very joyous great moment in this story and one that I, I just saw for the first time uh, on an old YouTube clip, which was uh, Robert smoking a joint uh, on Larry King Live. Uh, and I would love, having just watched that for the first time, I would love to know the, the story of that. <laughs> yeah, that is a good clip. I, I have to admit it. It, it. It's on my YouTube uh, channel, by the way, folks, which is um, Medical Marijuana Pioneer. That happened around the time that the Judge Young decision came down, where the administrative law judge of the DEA said he'd listened to all the evidence and marijuana should be rescheduled. But what I love about that show is you've got this, this guy here from, I can't remember his name, Schwartz or something like that, from some addiction rehab center. And Larry King really pegs that guy and says, well, you know, what what do you say here, Alan? Would you would you let would you let sick people not you know not have marijuana? Oh no no oh of course sick people should have marijuana. You know it's interesting. Robert was such an effective spokesperson that that you cannot find a federal official that would appear on the same another show with him a second time. And it got to the point in the mid '90s where no federal official would appear would agree to go on a show with Robert Randall because he just leveled them. He just, you know, tore them up one side and down the other. He was so calm, rational, good-looking guy, I think. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, he he just, he knew, he knew what was right. And uh, I, th I thought Larry King played with him in, in a nice way. Marijuana is safe enough to be prescribed for medical reasons. That's what the Drug Enforcement Agency's chief administrative law judge said last week. This unprecedented recommendation would legalize marijuana as medicine. And marijuana, by the way, was once legal in this country and prescribed. We welcome to Larry King Live, Bob Randall, the first American ever to gain legal access to marijuana because of his glaucoma condition. We're going to show you a first. I'm sure it's a first. A typical prescription bottle. You have seen these all over America all the time. There are billions of these prescription bottle. Except this one's unusual because what's in front of it is what's inside of it. See that white thing there? That's a marijuana cigarette and that's a legal marijuana cigarette. And this says uh, from the Washington Hospital Center Pharmacy, number 603654, first prescribed June 23rd, 87 for Robert Randall, marijuana cigarettes prescribed by Dr. North, directions, smoke as directed. Why are you allowed to Excuse me, Robert. Uh, well, I'm represented pro bono by a very large Washington law firm. I have a disease called glaucoma, and marijuana at this point is the only drug that will help prolong my sight. Lots of people have glaucoma. Lots of people do, but they don't have large Washington law firms representing them, and that's what's the problem. The quality of your medical care is depending on the quality of your lawyers, and that's wrong. What does marijuana do for 
for glaucoma? Well, glaucoma is essentially a disease of the eye. Uh, it's a progressive disease. It takes your sight slowly. Uh, there is no pain involved. And the fundamental treatment for glaucoma is to reduce the pressure inside the eye. How many do you have to take? It says take as needed. I uh, smoke 10 marijuana cigarettes a day and have been doing that for the last 12 years. And work uh, continuing to function? I mean, do you... Oh, yeah, I have no difficulty. Uh, I've been uh, pursuing the issue of marijuana's medical use since I first gained access. I began hearing from lots of other patients with cancer, glaucoma, multiple sclerosis. What was your occupation before? I was a college professor, taught speech. Why didn't you just continue to do that and use the drug? At the time that uh, I won the right to use marijuana in 1976, no one was sure how much longer I had to see. Uh, predictions were uh, pretty frightening that I would lose my sight within the year. And uh, I felt at that time that I should use my time, whatever time I had left, to try to assist other people right. in getting legal access. And you haven't gone blind? No, I haven't. Uh, I didn't walk in here with a white cane or a seeing eye dog, and that's thanks to marijuana. This cigarette was made by the government. It was made by the government. The cigarette itself is rolled in uh, North Carolina, where they apparently have some expertise in this, uh, and then it's shipped to various uh, clinics. So it has the uniformity? It's uniform. It's uniform in terms of its size and in terms of its dose, which makes it very usable as a medication. You, you know, can smoke it now legally, couldn't you? Sure. Do it fine. Okay. Well, Larry, he's gonna, I'm going to get high here. Would you I get high from the smoke? You I don't could. have a match. I don't have a match. No, I never thought I'd ever do this. <laughs> I don't think I'll give you a thing. You I have haven't a found a lighter yet. You haven't found a lighter. Are you a tobacco smoker? Uh, at times. I, You're I, kidding. When I'm nervous, I smoke a cigarette. You're a tobacco smoker. When I am nervous, I smoke a cigarette. Yes. This is a first. I want yeah, you to know, Larry. Too. Now, the only trouble is smoking and talking at the same time. I feel like Jerry Ford sometimes. It doesn't smell like tobacco. No, it has a distinct odor that's clearly marijuana. Uh, uh, in fact, the government's marijuana tends not to smell as good as marijuana grown privately. Of course, Larry got his licks in, too. This is the first. This is the first smoking on TV. Actually, I think the first time Robert smoked on a show like that was with Tom Snyder uh, back in the 70s. Um, but we won't tell Larry that. We'll, we'll <laughs> let him. We'll let him keep that moment. So when did you start to feel the tide turn again? When did you uh, think to yourself, you know, perhaps I will see not just some medical cannabis uh, laws in place and, and access for some people that, but that maybe legalization itself in the, in the full sense is, is, is possible and, and something that I will get to experience? Mm, what a good question. Um, you know, Bob, Bob died in 2001. And um, after his death, I, I really needed, I needed to step away. We'd always managed to be there for other people, but we had each other to pull along. And um, with Robert being gone, I, I just needed a break. And, and so I, I, took, I took almost, I took a full decade off um, from the cannabis movement and pursued another dream of mine, which was to become a hospice nurse. And I, I did that for six years um, and would not have changed that for anything. But then I, I retired in 2012. I knew a lot of things had changed in those 10 years that I was away. So I decided to do a fact-finding <laughs> adventure. And I, I was retired, right? Uh, I was living the American dream. And so I, I took my my uh, my Australian shepherd named Tango, and I got myself a van. And uh, Tango and I went out across the country, and uh, stopped in in Denver, Colorado, a good place to start on a, a fact finding tour about cannabis. It was that time that I went, oh, Alice, you you've been away a long time. You have a lot to learn. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, I had a lot of friends to teach me. And I think it, it was during that period that I realized, my God, this might, this might actually make it and really got to got totally immersed again uh, in the movement. Uh, love it. I'm, I, you know, I don't think I'll be walking away from it again. From 2014 until the pandemic hit, it was just really a great time for me in terms of the movement, much more, much more joyous <laughs> and, um, and easier, you know, at, at nights, um, it was easier to, to not worry about, well, how are we going to get so-and-so some marijuana because he's going to die if we don't. And then the other side, David, was I got to meet so many new people. 
I could almost say that there was a time when Robert and I knew all of all of the people in medical marijuana movement, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but not anymore. And yet all of them knew about Robert and I. It just validated everything that we'd done and all the the hard work and the sweat and the tears and the the bad times. It just made all of them go away. You know, we were right. <laughs> and we did do the right thing. As hard as it was at times, we did it. On behalf of myself and everyone listening to this podcast certainly feels the same. And everyone anywhere who has, you know, found the benefits of this plant, whether you were able to access it legally or not, um, you know, owe you that debt of gratitude. And um, things got easier because of the work and the sacrifice and the selfless acts of yourself, of Robert, and of so many people of that era. I'm wondering if cannabis is a part of of your life right now, and and um, you know what what you enjoy, and and what of all these new forms of cannabis you you find personally uh, rewarding. Well, I do. I'm I'm 75 years old, so um, you know I have some aches and pains. I actually have polyarthritis, which means I have arthritis and just about every joint of my body. And I do find marijuana cannabis to be um, very effective in helping with that. So yes, I am a user among the millions, which I love to say the millions of medical cannabis users in America today. And I've I've turned on quite a number of my friends as well, my, my cohorts, other people in my age bracket. Well, that certainly sounds to me like another great moment in weed history, a more personal one, but one that's reflective of the long journey that you've been on with this plant since those first four volunteer plants popped up in a uh, otherwise dead. God bless them. God, God bless them for sure. If there's uh, if there's any other great moment in your in your journey with this plant that you'd like to highlight here at the end, I'd I'd love to hear it as we as we wrap up our discussion. You know, it's it's a it's more than four decades for me at this point. There have been so many great moments, and my work now really is trying to preserve those moments, trying to get those first two decades of of medical marijuana movement up into the digital age. Actually, if people want to go to my website, which is simply aliceolearyrandall.com, they can find out about um, my current project, which I'm calling Project Fifty, and that refers to the year 2026, which will mark the 50th anniversary of the year that Robert got his first legal marijuana. By the time we get there, I hope to have these memories that I shared with you today and a lot more up online so that people can access them. Our book, Marijuana Rx, The Patient's Fight for Medicinal Pot, was published in 1998, pre-Kindle. So that has been a big hole as far as I'm concerned, and I'm, I'm currently working on the Kindle version of that book, which will be published in, uh, in September of this year. Um, so I'm, I'm reliving a lot of history these days, and um, it's um, sometimes painful, but lots of times it's just, God darn, I'm glad we did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we are all glad you did that, and... Um... I, you know, the preservation and education work is so important, not just as it relates to cannabis, but to give the world a working model of how change can happen through persistence, through mutual support, yes. and through yes. doubling down in our efforts as we face all of these obstacles. And I also love that uh, the great moments in weed history that we're going to leave off on are yet to come, that you are still looking forward and uh, still in uh communion with this plant. This has been an incredible uh, conversation. It is at the heart of why Great Moments in Weed History exists. I'm so grateful that you shared this with us and to everybody listening. um, Please share this episode with people in your life Uh, who may benefit from this plant medicinally, who may find inspiration in this story to continue 
working on behalf of this plant. And I think particularly, this would be an incredible episode to share with somebody who remains skeptical about medical cannabis, because I firmly believe that for every study and statistic and every medical journal article that comes out, that's one kind of data and that can sway people. But simply to understand that individual people have been working to make this change in society for 50 years with the only real benefit being sharing what you've been able to uh, bring in medicinally with everyone who would benefit is really in some ways the, the best tool we have to educate people is through our stories, through our perseverance, and through our preservation of this history. Alice, thank you so, so much. And everyone else, of course, we will see you next Weedness Day <laughs> for another episode <laughs> of Great Moments in Weed History. Thank you, David. It was been a pleasure. Well, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And if you stuck around this long, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can put five on it at greatmomentsinweedhistory.com. And that would really help us as we research, write, edit, and publish a new episode every Weedness Day. Great Moments in Weed History is written, produced, and performed by me, David Beanenstock, a.k.a. Bean. Special thanks to our sponsor, PAX. Go to PAX.com and use promo code GREATMOMENTS, all one word, for a big discount at checkout.